Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. But let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us, that you've called us, that you've redeemed us and that you call us yours. God, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I pray that we would see and hear your word tonight and it would transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So, I know that there's a lot of you uh, that know me and know me in a variety of different ways. Some of you know me as the recovery pastor. Some of you know that I played Jesus and Hero for a long time. Some of you know me as Pastor Jenny's husband. Some of you know me as Jack and Ella's dad. Some of you know the different roles that I've played in this church. Some of you know the different roles that I've played in your lives. And uh, Pastor Becky asked me to come here tonight and talk to you guys uh, about um, identity and really some of the attack on identity that's been happening in our culture. And I also really want to thank Pastor Sterling and Marissa for the incredible work that you guys are doing with the young, young adults and Pastor Deshaun with junior high, that it's so amazing that we are a church of generations that doesn't just put our kids in uh, Sunday school and plug them into pre-recorded content, but we really get the Bible into them. I have a seven-year-old daughter who prays in tongues and prophesies over people. It's so crazy. My son knows so much Bible and is constantly sharing really deep insights about the Bible because he's in kids' church all the time. When I went to Sunday school as a little kid, it wasn't like that. We learned stories from the Old Testament, and we sang, Jesus loves me. And I was thinking about that song before uh, the service, just while we were uh, watching the preview, that that came up as a memory in my mind. And I remember how much I loved that song. And even when I heard people, especially when I heard little kids sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I would hear that song as an adult, and it would make me weep for the memory of how much it touched me when I was a little kid. That I started going to church when I was four years old. And this may sound like a weird thing, but we had very loose boundaries in my house. I grew up with a mom who loves me and is an incredible mom. She's an incredible nana to Jack and Ella. And she's a really, truly wonderful woman. But I had some very loose boundaries as a kid. And I know that she was doing the absolute best that she could. And eventually, I ended up all right. 
So like that's the end of the story. But the beginning of the story was it was a little bit rough. We lived in a community in Vancouver, Canada that's a lot like PB here in, uh, in San Diego. And if you can imagine that like if we lived at the corner of Mission and Garnett and the church was at like uh, Faneuil or Ingram and Garnett, and my mom allowed me at four years old to wander up the street that far to go to church. That's like what it was like. But, you know, abnormal is normal when that's what you know. You know, you could have the craziest life ever, but if that's all you know, it's just normal to you. So it was normal to me, and I was a pretty articulate little smart kid, and I would just wander up to church by myself, and here Jesus loves me, and I felt the Father's love, which was not something that I felt at home. That I had a very, very broken, very narcissistic, alcoholic father, and whenever we would spend time together, he would just talk about how horrible my mom was and ignore any of the important things that were going on in my life. And I just wanted him to love me. I wanted him to tell me that he was proud of me. I wanted all of that stuff to happen. And because I wasn't getting it at home, I got it at church for a while. But what ended up happening was when I was about six years old in, in kindergarten, I heard that the other hero of Christmas wasn't real. And then I went home and asked my mom about him and she kind of paused, and I'm like, so the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and God aren't real either, are they? And she didn't have a good answer for me. And I got a little jaded. Because this thing that I had had so much hope in that had given me such a strong emotional feeling, I just felt like the person that was the most important person in the world to me had just like lied to me on something that was so deeply important to me. I didn't feel like I could trust other people. So I just learned how to trust myself at like five and a half years old. And I don't know how many five and a half year olds, you know, but like most of them haven't gotten it all figured out yet. Right. <laughs> So there I was, and I kind of lived that way where my best thinking was the be-all and end-all of life, that I would judge whether or not something was true by whether or not I thought it was true. And a lot of times I got those things wrong, but I kind of lived that way, though if you had asked me if I was living that way, I would say, I oh, know that's ridiculous, I, I'm not living that way. But that's the way it was if you really looked at it, and I experienced a lot of dysfunction in my life, that when I got into junior high, sex and sexuality started coming up as a thing, and then it became like a race to see who could lose their virginity first. Virginity wasn't looked at in the culture that I grew up in, which was just like the public school system, as something to be treasured, something to be held on to. The kids that talked about like being pure, I just thought they were lame. Because all the people that I thought were cool were trying as hard as I was to lose their virginity. And then it became like bragging rights. It didn't become about like sacrifice or honor or any of the things that we know that love should 
be. It certainly wasn't under the covenant of marriage. Marriage seemed like some distant thing that like adults did. And I wanted in some ways to be seen and viewed as an adult, as cool, as sophisticated, as all of those things without any of the responsibility, which is kind of like how this just works in our society. And there were a lot of things that I got very, very wrong in that, that I had been molested when I was five years old. And some of you know this story, some of you don't. I'm just going to keep it quick and not really dwell on it. But it was something that affected my view of the world, of myself, and of sex in later in life. And I didn't realize how profoundly it had affected me until somebody on a stage at Emerge, uh, that Pastor Jeff spoke, spoke about his experience with that at Emerge this year, and it brought something up in my life that I needed to heal from. And when I heard him talk about it, this memory just came back and I'm like, oh my gosh, it explains so much. And at a time when I had felt completely abandoned by my dad, where I felt like I wasn't worth fighting for, where he had just opted out of the court-appointed visitations that he was allowed to have with me and kind of left me to be raised by my mom, I really wanted a dad. And I can tell you, and I can probably get a show of hands, though I'm not going to, that most, most young men want a dad to tell them that they've got what it takes, that they're important, that they're loved, that they're worth fighting for, that, they're, that they've, they, they can figure out this world, but they also need the support to be able to figure it out in the right way. And I didn't have that. And my mom had a boyfriend who I thought was awesome because I thought he was going to be all of those things to me. My mom was asking me if maybe I wanted him to be my dad. And we went on a vacation and he, uh, he molested me. And I thought I let it happen because I didn't fight, it off, fight him off. And because I didn't fight him off, I thought I was at fault. And the enemy used that moment in my life. I was so afraid of being rejected that if I told him no, if I pushed him away, that he would push me away like my actual dad had pushed me away. The vacation ended up ending and I was left with this memory and the shame and I took that into life. There were a lot of things that I didn't do right. One of them was having boundaries in my life in any sort of meaningful way. And you can ask my wife about this. When we got married, I told her I don't like the word boundaries. <laughs> I'd come up with a way of dealing with that. I just called them standards. But the way I saw boundaries was like a wall. And I had a wall around my heart that I didn't even know was there. I didn't know how to let people in. And I was terrified to put a wall anywhere else in my life for fear of feeling more shut off. But for anybody that knows anything about boundaries, boundaries aren't meant to just keep people out, they're meant to protect what's inside. But when you don't believe what's inside is worth protecting, there's no reason to have boundaries. And I was willing to give whatever I had away to hope that I would receive 
love, receive acceptance, receive all of the things that I was missing in return. And it didn't work. But again, I'm just judging things by my own standards and getting them really wrong. And in this day and age, there's been a lot of attack on God's word and things saying, oh, well, this is just, this is old. Things are new now. But how many of you know that God's word has existed throughout many civilizations for thousands of years? And the societies that have been built on God's word have stood the test of time. I don't know how many of you know this, but all of the Ivy League institutions, the oldest universities in the world, were built originally as theological seminaries. The whole reason that we have higher education is because of the Bible. Universities were created to study the Bible. The Bible is the most studied book in the history of mankind. It is the book that we have the oldest copies of, dating back the longest time more than any other piece of literature. If you want to find an old copy of Plato's Republic, the oldest copy that you'll be able to find is like seven or 800 years old. The oldest copy of pieces of the Bible that we have is, dates back to the eyewitness period when Christ was actually, when the, the people that wrote the Bible were actually alive. So if you want to debate Bible accuracy, I don't have time for that right now. But if you actually care to dig into it, rather than thinking this was just something passed around by oral tradition around a fireplace back in times when people were scrawling things on cave walls, you're wrong. And I just want to make that really clear because there's literally hundreds of thousands of ancient copies of the Bible that letter for letter, word for word, are exactly the same. This wasn't like a guessing game for people. It was copied and checked and codified so that we would have a standard for a word that was divinely inspired through human hands that told us how to live. Okay. You with me? Okay. I got to get into this. So how many of you know that God doesn't make mistakes? How many of you just said, yes, but kind of believe that maybe he does? <laughs> don't, you don't have to put up your head. Okay. So I want you to know he didn't make a mistake with you. He never makes mistakes. He's perfect. Right. The journey of life with God is to discover the reason you were created and why you were created, and you figure that out by knowing him. God is, God is infinite, we are not infinite. We have a starting point and a soul that will exist into infinity. God is infinite both ways. He existed before time. He exists now and he will always exist. That, in that way, he's a little bit different than us. But he creates us with a plan and a purpose. And the way he creates us reflects a facet of who he is. But each one of us individually is meant to reflect an individual beautiful facet of how God is. We're not meant to imitate each other. We're meant to imitate Christ who is infinite, who has all of the facets. But he wants his light to shine through us. Have any of you ever seen a diamond before it gets cut or polished? It just looks like a cloudy piece of glass. It's in that cutting 
when each of those facets are exposed that it starts to be able to shine light so beautifully and brilliantly that it becomes one of the most valuable substances on earth. It's not in the value in the unrefined stone. It's in the stone that's been cut, where things have been chipped away, where diamonds actually find their value. And when we come into this world, we have a lot of stuff that's on us already. Generational stuff that we're probably not even aware of. You know, abnormal's normal when it's all you know, right? Grow up in a dysfunctional family? I don't know, seemed fine to me. And then you see a family that's actually healthy and functional, and you're like, wow. <laughs> right? God didn't make a mistake with you. He doesn't make mistakes. He made us in his perfect image. When we act like idiots, we're not reflecting God being an idiot. We're reflecting the fact that we live in a fallen world. Make sense? Okay, there's never a time where God says, oops, shoot, I gave him an innie when I should have given him an Audi. Well, that's just the journey he's on. I hope he figures it out. It's not in God's vocabulary. And there's this philosophy that breaks down when you really look at it that is popular in our culture right now. And, you know, Hollywood is a place where anything is possible. You see Forrest Gump, you see somebody that's developmentally disabled, able to start a very successful shrimp company and meet you know, presidents and run across the United States and do all of these miraculous things, be a war hero, decorated, all these things. And people's suspension of disbelief is like, no, that's possible. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You see people overcome the most ridiculous odds, the, the underdogs we're all rooting for that are like the heroes of Hollywood. Hollywood says you can be anything you want to be, except if you're gay, and then you can only be that, Otherwise, you're a fraud. And there's a breakdown in that philosophy because you get to that point and anything else is possible, but if you don't accept this thing about yourself, then you're a fraud. And it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. So the Bible is full of warnings. And all of you are probably familiar with Yelp, right? Okay, so regardless of how you personally feel about Yelp as a platform, you're familiar with the idea that people leave reviews of businesses to either recommend or to warn others about the business. If they've legitimately had a bad time, the business was not delivering on what they promised, they had a low quality product, bad customer service, they leave a bad review, and the other Yelpers thank them for the review that they left. If they have an outstanding product, had great customer service, and there's these must-try things at the business, they leave a good review, other Yelpers thank them, right? I think that this philosophy should work in other areas of life. Like, if there's a problem ahead that people should warn others about the problem. Following me on that? But then there's a fence culture that steps in. And I recently read a part of a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. 
For those of you who are interested in reading, you can look up The Coddling of the American Mind. It started off as an article in The Atlantic magazine, which is not a conservative magazine, talking about what's happening in schools right now, especially in universities, where professors have to put trigger warnings on things that could just be you know, cause for thought. But they had to put a trigger warning on the great Gatsby because he was a bit of a misogynist. And so if somebody's had an experience dealing with a misogynist or being in an abusive household growing up, they could potentially be triggered by this book. What they found is trigger warnings are creating anxiety in students. That it's not actually the literature, but the warning that's creating anxiety. And then there's these other things called microaggressions. How many are familiar with microaggressions? So microaggressions, it's a term, I wasn't familiar with this until recently, that somebody could say something, maybe not even thinking about it, meaning to slight somebody else. There was a friend of mine that put out a question on, uh, on Instagram, and she asked, has anybody ever been complimented for being articulate? It was a poll. And I said, yeah, actually, last time I, I preached, which was just like a week ago, I was complimented for being articulate. And she's like, I was it by a 50-year-old or older man? And I said, no, I think it was probably like a 40-year-old woman. Why do you ask? And she's like, oh, I could see why somebody would compliment you for being articulate, but I still think it was a microaggression. And the microaggression that she thought it was was that the person expected me to be inarticulate, so they had to call out the fact that I was articulate, and it was still a way of them maintaining their superiority over me. And I thought, this is the most absurd thing that I ever, you know, I might have like two minutes with a person, or maybe 30 seconds with somebody afterwards, and they're just trying to say, hey, I thought you put words to something that I couldn't put words to, thank you for doing that. And then I go on about my day, not thinking about how they're somehow minimizing me in my mind and then growing this offense around them. You got me on that? Okay. So this is going on in our culture, and there's a lot of lies about people, about truth, and about other things that are under attack. Okay. So there's a challenging and controversial scripture, and I was really debating whether or not this should be my first scripture, but I want to tell you that I have been all of these things in this scripture, so I'm not pointing fingers without pointing one back at myself, okay? Okay, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit to or perform homosexual acts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It can seem like, oh my gosh, can you believe he just said that? But I want to frame it for you in a different way. So first of all, an inheritance isn't something you get when you die. An inheritance is something you get when somebody else dies so that you can live a better life. 
So the kingdom of God isn't just for tomorrow. Jesus died so we could get heaven in us today and start living our best lives. And this scripture is just a warning. If you choose any of these things, you're choosing not to live your best life. And this can be out of line with what you think you feel. So if I feel like I'm entitled to something that's not mine, I am being greedy. I am not trusting God for what he promises to provide me. If I look at somebody else's wife, or if I look at somebody else who is not my wife as an object of sexual desire and I desire to consume them, I am not thinking about their body, I am not thinking about their soul, I am not thinking about their spirit, I am not thinking about the way they may be affected by my actions, I am thinking about myself. I'm not believing that God has everything that I need in my wife. I am conforming myself to the world. I'm not letting God transform my mind and believing him for the promised land when all I can see is the desert. Does that make sense? Okay. Great. So you probably heard the old saying that feelings aren't facts, right? I want to tell you that not everything that we label as a feeling is even really a feeling. So feelings are emotions, not perceptions. I'm gonna get a little bit deep with you right now, okay? How many of you say, I feel that, and then you follow that sentence along? Anybody? I'm guilty. If you ever say, I feel that something, that is not a feeling, that is a thought. The only things that you feel are emotions. So you can say, I feel sad, I feel happy, I feel joyful. But saying, I feel that you're not doing a good job, that is not a feeling. That is a thought that you're not taking responsibility for. And this is where the problem comes up, is that thoughts are easy to change when you're presented with contrary evidence. But if you feel everything, it's a lot harder to change because the evidence isn't so concrete. How many know that life and death are in the power of the tongue? So when I start to use the word feel instead of think, not only am I not speaking powerfully, When I say, I think that's wrong, that is decisive. When I say, oh, I feel that's wrong, I'm not really sure whether I think that or not, and I'm opting out, I'm abdicating my responsibility for my own thoughts. Does that make sense? So you could say, I I don't feel right in my skin. I feel like maybe God made a mistake with me and I was born in the wrong body. I could probably look, and it wouldn't take long for me to figure this out if I was relying on concrete facts. So I want to introduce you to a a couple of things, and I got to get through this this quick. So Dr. Maureen Kondik, who is a PhD 
from UC Berkeley. She's on the United States National Science Board. She's an associate professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah School of Medicine with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Pediatrics. She is an expert. She says, natural organization is the defining feature of an organism. In organisms, the various parts are organized cooperatively to interact for the welfare of the entity as a whole. Organisms can exist at various levels from microscopic single cell organisms to sperm whales many, weighing many tongue, tons, but they are all characterized by the integrated function or parts that work together for the sake of the whole. So what she's saying is that we don't have parts that are just there accidentally, that all of our parts work together for the whole. And when you start to change parts, you start to work against the function of the organism. Make sense? Okay, so Dr. Michelle Cretella says, the norm for human development is for one's thoughts to align with physical reality and for one's gender identity to align with one's biologic sex. For human beings to flourish, they need to feel comfortable with their own bodies, readily identify with their sex, and believe that they, who, or they are who they actually are. For children especially, normal development and functioning require accepting their physical being and understanding their embodied selves as male or female. Dr. Michelle Cretella, president of American College of Pediatricians. So most real scientists agree that sex is a biologic fact, that the idea of gender dif differentiation from natural sex is an idea that's been made up in the past 20 or 30 years and then given power in the past like decade and it's not actually helpful. In Sweden, they did a 30 year study of people that had had gender reassignment surgery and the Obama administration researched uh, whether Medicare should pay for gender reassignment surgery. And so that department looked at all of these studies that were done and the most conclusive study, this one that was done in Sweden, was found that it was horrifying what happened to these people 10 years out from when they were reassigned. The mortality rate was primarily due to completed suicides almost 20 times greater than in normal populations. But death due to neoplasm and cardiovascular disease was increased two to two and a half times as well. We note mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. The risk for psychiatric hospitalization was two times greater than it was in controls, even after adjustment for prior psychiatric disease. The risk for attempted suicide was greater in male to female patients, regardless of gender of the control. And further, we cannot exclude therapeutic in interventions as a cause for the observed excess morbidity and mortality. This was written by the, uh, the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Studies under the Obama administration. This isn't conservative news, this is scientists doing science, figuring out whether or not our tax dollars should go to something that is actually causing harm to people. So this message in the four minutes that I have left uh, is called Love Who You Are. And I really thought about the title of this message and the meaning of this message that in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, the Bible says, 
there was a scribe that was asking Jesus about what he thought was most important. And he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the first commandment is to love God. The second is to love yourself and to love your neighbor equally to yourself. So to love God means I also have to trust him, right? I can't say I love you, but I don't trust you. In somewhere, there's, there's some lack of love, you know, in, for love to be real, it's like light. You know, and the Bible says that God is light, and where God goes, where the light goes, darkness has to flee. Same thing with love. If I love somebody, but I don't trust them, I don't completely love them. So Proverbs uh, 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. So love God. Next, I have to love myself. And I'm not just saying love yourself above your neighbor. And this is where the Bible tempers itself. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that word as doesn't translate exactly as it does in the Greek or in the Hebrew, because the word that it translates from means to like overlap. It exists in the same way at the same time. But tempering your love for your neighbor by your love for yourself, it's saying don't love yourself more than you love your neighbor. But you also can't love your neighbor more than you love yourself. Because as much as you love yourself, will you be able to love your neighbor because you can't transmit something you don't got, right? We love because he loved us first. So I've got to love God first and accept his love if I'm going to love my neighbor well. Make sense? Okay, so Romans 12.2 in the message version says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it even without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops the well-formed maturity in you. John 16:33 says, "These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world." So put those two together. It's saying don't change who you are to fit into the world. Instead, discover and use the gift that God has put in you to overcome the world. You good? Okay. Now, I want everybody to close their eyes. This isn't an altar call, but I want you to pray this over yourself. I want you to just repeat after me. This is what God's word says about you. This isn't positive self-talk. This is God's word. So there's a difference between positive affirmations, which may or, not be, may or may not be rooted in God's word, 
and speaking God's word over yourself. This is speaking God's word over yourself. And these are all things that he says we are. The world wants you to put your I am to a lot of things. Look to what God says about you before you start saying, I am this or I am that. You with me on that? Okay, repeat after me. I am the light of the world. I am loved. I am blessed. I am his child. I am his friend. I am important. I am redeemed. I am free. I am beautiful. I am restored. I am chosen. I am forgiven. I am a saint. I am made in God's image. I am gifted. I am valuable. I am purposeful. I am strong. I am courageous. I am an heir. I am formed by God. I am victorious. I am known. I am bold. I am his masterpiece. Now I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. If when one of those statements left your lips, or if when many of those statements left your lips, and before you even said it, you thought, I'm lying, this isn't true about me, I want you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you. Is there anybody like that in here? Anybody? God bless you, 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 God bless you. Hands going up all over this place. You know, the Bible says that we love because God first loved us. And if this loving relationship starts with faith, believing that he actually loves me, and if I don't actually believe that he fully loves me, and if I don't believe that he wanted to save me, if I don't believe that if I was the only one that he would have sent his son anyway to die on a cross for me so that I would be redeemed. I'm missing an element of his love. So can I get everybody to bow their head and close their eyes right now? And I want you to join me in this prayer, whether you raised your hand or not. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you so loved me that you sent Jesus Christ on a rescue mission to save me. God, I know that just like in your word, you don't need me to be perfect to start a loving relationship with you. Today, I accept that invitation. God, I ask you, to come into my life, to be my perfect father, and to raise me as your child. I commit to believing you. Instead of looking at the world and comparing myself to it, to look at your word and ask you to make me more like you. God, I pray that you would surround me with community that would build me up, that would challenge me, 
and would grow me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.